Welcome to this last event of the evening at uh, at the SA Pavilion. I am Joanne Yawich from the NBI and I'm going to moderate this panel and that has been organized by Anglo-American and that is really focusing on looking at some of the issues around the implementation um, of the JetP and of the Just Transition. A, a great panel. Um, and tonight, and I think we're particularly pleased to have uh, Minister Creasy join us. Um, join us on the panel. Next to her is Lebohang Molawesi, who's the head of policy from Kasatu. Next to her is Wendy Dobson, the head of group corporate citizenship at Standard Bank. Then Nolita Fakude, who's the chair of Anglo-Americans Management Board in South Africa. Uh, Daniel Minele, who heads up the Presidential Climate Finance Task Team. And last but very definitely not least is Nazmira Mula, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer at 91. And I'm going to start by asking Minister Creasy, who I think has emphasized um, in a number of her inputs this idea of an all-of-society endeavor to maybe talk a little bit about how do you see that playing out in practice? What does it really mean? And how does it relate to how we conceptualize a just transition? Uh, thanks very much, Joanne, and good evening to everybody. And allow me to recognize our esteemed panel. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity to share a few words with you on the just energy transition investment plan and why it's important and why implementing it is important. So I just had an opportunity to address a forum at the World Bank where we were looking at a research report that talks about the opportunities and the possibilities in the climate transition. And uh, it also talks about the threats and the risks that face countries if they don't rise to the transition challenge. And the first issue that I shared with them was the fact that there is nothing inevitable about benefiting from the opportunities and the potential for economic development, job creation, and so on, of a green transition. We could just as easily face the risks and the challenges. And so the investment plan is important because what it offers us is a South African-led and potentially a South African-driven vision of where we want to get to between now and 2030. And on Friday, before President Ramaphosa came here to hand that plan over to the IPG partners, he took the opportunity to share the plan with the climate, the Presidential Climate Commission. And the purpose of doing that was to ask the Commission to facilitate engagement around the plan so that we should have a whole of society ownership of that plan. Now, 
we're talking about a climate transition, what we would understand is that government is only a small part of that transition. Government would have a role in putting a regulatory framework in, in place. Government would have some role in financing. Government would have some role in international in interaction with uh, multilateral institutions to further the financing objectives. But at the end of the day, this transition is a whole of society transition. It requires the participation of the private sector. It requires organized labor to share not only in the development of the vision and its implementation, but also to share in the benefits that the transition could offer and not just the risks. It requires civil society because as this transition unfolds, it's going to affect each and every one of us and the lifestyle choices we make in our everyday lives. And so it's, it's very important that we try to mobilize as wide a support as we can. Of course, what we understand is that the concept of the transition is also generating enormous fear and concern in our society. And when the Climate Commission went out on consultation around the just transition framework, they were inundated with people who were concerned not just about losing their jobs, but were also concerned about the broader economic impact in Mpumalanga, anywhere from Delmas all the way to Belfast, uh, would really be the coal territory where workers are, are very conscious of the fact that they are vulnerable to this transition risk. And I think that the the vulnerability was brought home to me when I was doing my, my political work around the 2019 election and I was campaigning door to door in places like Whitbank and Middleburg. And in every single home on the washing line, there's either an ESCOM uniform or a mine workers uniform. And it just brings home to you how livelihoods are intertwined in that area with the coal value chain. And so it's very important. You know, this thing that the green transition is going to create jobs. Yes, it's going to create jobs, but it's not going to help those workers if those jobs are in the Northern Cape. And unless we have active labor market interventions and active investment interventions and active work in ensuring that we understand what are the opportunities in that Mpumalanga economic ecosystem, unless we do that, there won't be climate justice for those workers and for those communities. And lastly, there's the issue of financing. And 
And of course, what we understand is that we are working hard in the international domain to attract investment financing, concessional loan financing, and also grant financing. But in the end, some of the financing is going to come from the carbon taxes, and that, of course, is going to affect each and every one of us, and as I said in the beginning, our lifestyle choices. So it's important that we are all part of it, we all understand what we're in for, and we all work together in making it a reality. Thank you very much, Joan. Thank you. Thank you very much, Minister. Thank you. I think that was um, a, 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 a very eloquent um, introduction to, I think, some of the challenges and the dilemmas that we face um, in relation, when we talk about just transition in an abstract way, it really does need to be made concrete. And let me start off by um, asking Nolita to, to maybe talk a little bit about your understanding of what business's responsibility is in the relation to the just transition and how the business community needs to come together to be able to do the kinds of things that would build the trust that would enable this process to be seen as a positive and constructive one. Thank you, Joanne, and uh, good day to everyone. Um, I want to first uh, say I'm very happy that Minister Chrissy is here giving us that context because for business, one of the most critical issues is often around getting a regulatory framework in place, getting certainty around what the industrial strategy of the country is going to look like 30 years time, 50 years time, and also more importantly, the enabling environment that government creates for all of us to do our bit into the ecosystem. So, so truly, I'm, I'm happy that you've covered that minister. And for us as, as business, the important part is now to say, how do we then leverage the framework that has been set in place for us, especially with the, the plan, the investment plan in place, to make sure that we can catalyze more growth for the economy and for business, we're always looking for projects to invest in and those projects that are bankable and more importantly, that will make sure that we can be able to transition and have resilience into the future because if we do not transition as from a cl climate change perspective, it means that our businesses and society will not be resilient for the future. So what are we doing in business in South Africa, for example? The fact that energy, as, a, as an example, renewable energy is one of the reforms that we have seen come through in the last 18 months, being able to have your renewable energy, embedded energy within your organization, that helps us to make sure that we are able to plan for the future and help release some of the pressure from the grid. And then obviously look at other opportunities for making sure that we get to the zero carbon emissions and net zero by 2040 uh, in our particular instance in a way that is sustainable. So there are those reforms that we have seen come through 
in the last 18 months, being able to have your renewable energy, embedded energy within your organization, that helps us to make sure that we are able to plan for the future and help release some of the pressure from the grid and then obviously look at other opportunities for making sure that we get to the zero carbon emissions and net zero by 2040 uh, in our particular instance in a way that is sustainable. So there are those kind of initiatives that we're looking at specifically around renewable energy. Thank you, thank you, Nolita. Uh, Lebohan, can, can I move to, to, to you? Um, I, the minister spoke about this, this fear that people in the coal belt have. I mean, it's an absolutely warranted fear, and I think that we've seen in our country what happened to people when um, the gold mining industry started to decline and the level of social dislocation that that caused. We, we don't want that to happen out of this transition and maybe if I can ask you if you could wave a wand and look at what would need to happen to make this work from the perspective of the labor movement and the interests of ordinary workers in the coal value chain what would that look like can I ask for socialism now <laughs> Maybe one of the things that we have to realize as the various stakeholders and, and partners to this transition, because that's what we are, we're partners to this just transition, is that if we do transition in a manner that is unjust, that is a risk for all of us. It's a risk for labor, it's a risk for government stability, it's a risk for businesses. Um, so I think if we realize and we have that at the back of our mind, it makes the job easier because then we realize that we have a lot to lose if we cut corners in terms of this particular transition. And you're right, we've gone through a number of transitions and to be quite honest, they have not benefited communities and labor. So it's not, it's not an unreasonable thing for now communities and labor to have the type of hesitancy that we currently have. But what's so great about this time is that we have all this time to prepare. And how South Africa has done this, I must commend South Africa and how we've taken on our diversity and adversity to come together through the PCC and the various other um, bodies that have been established to plan for this. I mean, what you, what you ideally want in this process is for us to have a shared idea of a South Africa that we want. A South Africa that we want in 2050 and a South Africa that we want to leave for future generations. We want people that are gainfully employed. I think that's at the heart of it and that goes to what the minister says. The people that are hanging their, their clothes on the line, these are mine workers. We want to see gainful employment but we also want to protect our environment in the same vein. There are no jobs on a dead planet. There's no business on a dead planet. There's no political stability on a dead planet. So if we recognize that these are the things that we want, we want equality, we want equity in our society. We can't keep holding the mantle of being the most unequal country in the world. That's not something we should be priding ourselves on. And I think in this transition, we have an opportunity to do something about this. And socialism. 
Okay, and I think we'll come back just now to practically what we must do, uh, I think is the where the rubber hits the road. Um, maybe if I can move on to you, Nazmira, and Daniel, I'm going to come to you at the end, <laughs> just to let you know. So Nazmira, then Wendy, then we'll come back. Um, earlier on this morning, in the panel this morning, you were talking about the fact that we probably, in order to support this transition as the financial services sector and as investors, look at taking on, I was very intrigued when you talked about taking on more rather than less risk. And I would really like you to talk a little bit about what would that look like and what would it translate into in terms of the kinds of investments that we really need to make in order to support the, support the transition. So, John, as we think about transition and we think about just transition in South Africa, a large part of it through the invest side will come through the new investments we make. There's a portion of it that's going to be through our current investments and holding those companies where we have shareholdings or we have large investments in their corporate debt to account. So we have developed a framework to assess the transition plans of the companies we hold. And one of the components of that framework is the just transition element. <laughs> of some of the comments that were made earlier, if we don't have a just transition, the sustainability of the transition becomes very questionable because the socio-political backlash from that becomes a concern. So that's what we're doing in terms of holding existing holdings to account. In terms of my comment from earlier around the financial sector needing, on, needing to take on a bit more risk, I think when we finance the new infrastructure, there's always a tendency to want as much protection as we can get. And when you have new technologies, as renewables were in 2008, 2009, it was full belts and braces. So you had full guarantee on the offtake from government. And that's pretty much a global standard at that point. If you look at what the UK did at the time with contracts for difference, that was what happened. But what's happened in the intervening 13 years is the appetite in many other countries to take on risk has increased. South Africa, we still tend to be a little bit stunted because we haven't been running renewables programs for a while. And therefore, I think as we finance a lot of the new infrastructure, we need to accelerate our thinking in the financial sector. So fortunately, companies are now at the, I mean, banks are now at the point where they're happy to finance corporate offtake, where if a company, Nalita comes along and says, she's going to be guaranteeing 100% of the offtake, you'll get financing. You don't need the government to guarantee anymore. The part we need to get to is when a sponsor, when an infrastructure builder wants to build a plant with only a 50% offtake, the bank needs to be able to finance that. And that's where the rest of the world has rapidly gotten to, certainly the developed world, and that's what I think South Africa needs to get to in the next couple of years. 
Okay, thank you, thank you very much for, 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 for kind of, I think, spelling out um, what that means. And maybe, Wendy, from a, to talk a little bit about that as a perspective, but from, I think, really looking at the journey that Standard Bank has walked in relation to um, its customers and its clients in relation to climate change over the last few years. Thank, thanks, Joanne. Um, so Standard Bank recently turned 160 years old uh, two weeks ago and one of the things I often say when talking about climate change in the bank is we want to be around for another 160 years and we can't do that if we don't tackle climate change. It's core to our purpose of driving Africa's growth. But we're also a bank that operates in 20 African countries and we, we bank a lot of, of uh, the, the big, bad, hydrocarbon, hard to abate sectors. Um, so, so what do we do with that? And so I just want to use maybe two examples in two, in two very different sectors. One, one is coal. So we bank the coal, coal mining and we're under a lot of pressure from particularly NGOs and, and, and certain investors to, in our climate targets and our climate policy, to, to make a, a, a bold, firm commitment to say no new, no new coal financing, that's it. By a certain date we stopped, we'll stop. And we think that would actually be an irresponsible thing to do. Um, we need to rather walk a journey with our clients in these sectors to work with them on their transition plans. Um, link financing, link an ongoing banking relationship to credible climate transition plans. But we can't just say, you know, in five years' time, that's it. Uh, we're not financing you anymore because of the issues around uh, a just transition and, and the knock-on effect on social cohesion. I mean, we need to talk about more about social resilience as, as part of climate resilience. But I think some of the debates in mining, coal-fired power, oil and gas are very well sort of ventilated. But recently we've been working with our residential real estate team to set climate targets um, in home loans. And we, we, we uh, have 40% of the market in South Africa, so it's big concentration risk. And we've been looking at what, what's been happening in KZM with the floods. And we're talking about, you know, an average home loan is 20 to 30 years. Now, will we give a home loan to a, to a property built in Umshloti, where we, we had the mudslides, and would we do that? And we started talking about the knock-on effects. So you want to decarbonize your lending. You want to have uh, to, to deal with physical risk in your lending, have more energy-efficient homes. But would that mean we start pricing more customers out of the home loans market? We can't have a situation where we have a new form of redlining, greenlining, <laughs> that we're only going to give 30-year bonds and have home loan insurance on certain types of properties that make it even more expensive for people to own their own home. And these are the debates that we're going through as a bank to thinking about, well, what, what would this actually mean for our customers and our future customers? I think that in all of the, the inputs that have been made, uh, Daniel, there is an abundance of will. I think everybody's saying this is a journey we have to walk. 
we have no option. We've got to do it in the best way possible. We've got to, it's going to stretch us, but that there is this potential that we all need to take. Maybe if you could talk a little bit about how you see uh, the JET IP supporting, um, supporting the just transition and supporting this process of bringing us all together and setting us in a direction. Uh, thanks, Joanne, and good evening, everyone. Uh, to start with, uh, thanks, Minister, for your uh, comments. Just to underline and echo those that, of course, the implementation of the JP is the responsibility of all social partners. The government has, of course, got a responsibility to lead and provide the appropriate sort of policy framework, the enabling environment and, and frameworks, as it were. But for this plan to see the light of day in terms of implementation requires full ownership by all of us and making sure that everybody uh, chips in and plays their, their respective role. In developing uh, the plan, we were, of course, guided very much by uh, this notion of saying this is a whole society, a whole economy, a plan, and that needs to be reflected in how we look at the components of the financing and putting that together. You recall that at the beginning we're thinking about how to deal, for instance, with the just component. Do we isolate it and put it um, as a separate kind of theme? And we, of course, opted against that and says, you know, the just investments and the just components must sit in all of those three priority areas uh, that we're putting together in terms of finance, as opposed to uh, somebody thinking I'm responsible for the technical bit and the just stuff is going to be outsourced to somebody else. So that's what we tried to do in the plan. Uh, I'm glad to hear Nazmira sort of touching on a critical financing principle uh, that we said, look, we need to make sure that there's appropriate risk sharing arrangements in terms of we look at this finance because this is not just a, an issue for government or for the public sector. We need public-private sector partnerships and that of course entails that we all play our respective roles, that there needs to be alignment in terms of the financial policies, the energy policies, the regulatory policies, such that when we get to mobilize finance, we get into a situation where the responsibilities, the benefits, the risks, and the challenges of this transition are then shared in an equitable and a fair uh, manner. But key to it is that in the financing of this, we leverage the, uh, the private sector because at the end of the day, in reality, the real money and this transition will probably be, have to be delivered by the private sector. So the public sector funds that are scarce will be leveraged in such a way that we crowd in the public sector funding. So the one other issue, of course, that's got to be important is a slightly different thinking in terms of the new paradigm that we're in. How do we think about risk return um, 
the equation there. How do you think about investment horizons? Um, how do we ask for what type of compensation for what underlying risks uh, that we're taking on? And so it can be a situation of saying, look, uh, we need to be de-risk and we're sitting back and waiting what incentives, what subsidies are being uh, given. So that, that's what makes, I think, a, a, a joint responsibility and a common responsibility to say, for this to work, um, we need to look at finance uh, slightly differently from the traditional approaches. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Daniel. A at this point, uh, instead of um, taking a second round of, of questions, um, I want to ask if there's anybody who wants to either comment or ask a question from from the floor. Um, I think let's try in this last half an hour get as much audience interaction as as possible. So maybe let me ask that and. If there is nobody, then I will come back to to, to the panel. My name is uh, Tembisile Salman. Um, I work for the New Development Bank uh, based in Jobek. I uh, just wanted to comment or uh, comment the work that's been done to put together the investment plan. Um, but what I do want to say is it's important to interrogate what we're being asked. Because I think as South Africa, you know, um, we are, um, in terms of pollution, 1% um, uh, polluter. However, we're being asked to take on more debt as a country. And given the challenges that we have, uh, but we understand the role that we have to play um, in working together with our partners in trying to reduce carbon emissions. And I'm saying this, you know, if I look at some of the solutions that have been put forward, for instance, uh, the one that's been put uh, forward is uh, Komati. And currently Komati, I think there's got three components. There's the decommissioning, and there's the repurposing, and there's also the reskilling. Um, when I say we need to interrogate some of the things that are being put forward before us, um, you know, there's a component there that I don't understand, the decommissioning part of it. Um, it's, for instance, about 40 million US dollars. The component itself, for me, I thought, you know, we, we could focus more on the reskilling part of it and making sure that um, the workers, um, you know, are able to um, have sustainable jobs uh, going forward. Um, but if you look at 40, uh, 40 million US dollars for the various stations that we're po possibly going to have, um, chances are we're increasing uh, the debt burden on the, on, the, on the entity itself, that is ESCOM. Um, would it not have been possible to take some of that money and, and potentially you know, uh, give that towards um, maybe having a shareholding for the workers? Um, and that would be something that's sustainable going forward. Um, so when I say, you know, we need to interrogate some of these um, uh, questions that, that are being put uh, before us. You know, it's, it's simple examples like that, um, that, you know, um, there's a lot of money that's being asked, but I think it's important. Um, we also push back on some of these solutions that are being put before us, uh, because some of them are not necessarily uh, sustainable. So it's Thank just you. a comment. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think that's a really interesting comment, and maybe somebody 
I don't know if there's anyone from ESCOM who might want to respond. We'll come back to the panel in a minute. Is there anybody else who would like to, to comment? I would like to come back to you, Nolita. Um, and Anglo has this very ambitious 2020-40 vision as, as a company um, in terms of your decarbonization and your net zero targets. And Anglo has also framed it very much within the context of achieving the SDGs. And so I suppose the question I really want to ask is, how do you do this in a way that really benefits your workforce and the communities um, around uh, around your minds and your your other assets in this context of of the just transition? Yeah. So so Joanne, we we need to take a step back and look at the decarbonisation uh, aspirations that we've got and commitments we've made uh, for 2040 and understand one, the different pathways that we have committed to, to do that decarbonization. But two, most importantly, why for us as a company it's important to do that. Mineral resources across the spectrum, we know that are still going to play a critical role for the decarbonization of the economies globally. When we think about critical metals and minerals that will be required, whether it's copper, nickel, platinum, um, rhodium, many of those, those will be coming from mining. And the big question mark around the, the supply chain and, and how that supply chain is actually mined in a sustainable way comes in. So for us, when I say it's about our resilience and sustainability for the future, truly that's what we're looking at. And also mining is a finite resource. You know that at the end of a period, you move to another area. So what we are looking at is the ecosystem around us. And one of the commitments, for instance, that we have made is that for every job that we create internally, we want to catalyze five other jobs outside the company, including the host communities. And those jobs don't necessarily have to be in mining. They could be in energy or even new industries that actually will thrive beyond the life of the mine. And to, to keep us uh, honest, we've put those as part of our long-term commitments, including in a new uh, sustainability bond that we have raised with the IFC, the 10-year bond that we have raised, where one of the key deliverables is to make sure that those jobs that we're talking about, the five jobs for everyone we have, are actually sustainable and are created and are there. So our focus is more around the sustainable mining plan, what we talk as to a sustainable mining plan, and also making sure that we do create the ecosystem that thrives and creates other opportunities for communities around where we operate. And also to make sure that our value chain, as I had said earlier on, can actually survive beyond South Africa. So you take a, 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 a mineral product from South Africa, any of the mining companies, we want it to be part of the future skills. 
and future um, minerals that can be used so that then we in the country can actually be able to be sustainable as well. Thank you. And maybe to ask Lebohang, how do you relate Lebohang to a promise of one, five jobs for, for, for everyone? And how do you think that um, within the context of the labor movement, the kind of conversation that would be necessary in order to get buy-in and support, I suppose, for that kind of vision, what, what would it take in reality? An environment of trust. Trust in the fact that business will do what they say they will do, government will do what they say they will do, but for us to also be active participants in this process. We're not just sitting and waiting for the jobs to come. And maybe just to touch to the comment that was made earlier, it reminds me of in 2019 where the workers through ESCOM Social Compact decided that they wanted to convert their debt into equity in ESCOM to become the shareholder and assist ESCOM with its transition to renewable energy by removing a substantial amount of its debt. So that's how workers are already starting to practicalize some of these issues and how they want to be participants in this process. We are currently developing a model of shareholder activism where workers are looking at where they're investing their pension money, where the pension funds are, because those need to go into greener activities, activities in a low carbon economy. So this is how workers are now starting to envisage these processes. We're not sitting waiting for people to make decisions for us. We are active participants in this process, proposing what we believe is a way in which we proceed forward and to create these jobs and lock the pipelines to create the jobs because it's not just a one-to-one -one job discussion that we need to be having. We have such structural unemployment that we need to be talking about one-to-five job creation. And workers already through them, so yeah, we've always been blamed that we also want return on investment when it comes to our pensions. But workers are now starting to think creatively about this through their shareholder activism. Thank you. Um, I was I was hoping that you would raise this issue of, of of pensions and worker savings and how we mobilize, in a sense, a national resource into and behind uh, this kind of an endeavor. And I don't know, Daniel, if you want to to comment on that. Thanks, John. I thought maybe I should come. I'm not from ESCOM, but there doesn't seem to be any ESCOM volunteers here. But um, just a couple of points in response to the two issues that you raised. First of all, uh, the issues around, around taking on more debt. Uh, as part of devising this plan, right at the outset, we defined certain guiding principles uh, that we would look to in negotiating the financing package. And one critical one was to say that whatever package we end up with and put to the IMC and cabinet uh, must make sure that uh, it speaks and takes account of the fiscal realities and challenges of the country and all the way we obviously have been working very closely with the national treasury to ensure that we fit into the fiscal frameworks as they evolve so that we don't unduly uh, load up on climate related debt uh, for future uh, generations so that part and parcel of considering that any debt related terms fit into reducing cost in terms of concessionality 
blending with various uh, other contributions that could be grants or philanthropic uh, uh, money. So that is very much front and center that in trying to solve and respond to the climate uh, crisis, you don't inadvertently create another problem uh, by sort of loading up on, on, on climate-related debt. With regard to Komati, I think the points that were raised, you're raising, uh, with what is being done, it's exactly what you're trying to solve in the sense that we have to remember that the Komati power station has reached the end of its uh, useful life. So in the absence of these innovative solutions of thinking about repurposing and trying to reskill people and essentially extend the life of that power station in new and greener clothes, the alternative would have been to lock up and throw away the key because that's the end of it. You can't run that power station much longer and that obviously would have exacerbated the uh, uh, the, uh, the unemployment challenge. So this is part and parcel. The pilot that's been run there is to make sure that um, you somehow um, protect those that are most vulnerable uh, from from this transition process. Okay, th thanks, thanks very much uh, for that, Daniel. I I'm going to um, ask Nazmira and um, and then Wendy Wendy to come in and. Maybe having looked at the, the jet investment plan, I think there is an assumption in it that is hasn't received huge prominence, but it is there. And that is that a very large proportion of the finance that is required for this very ambitious transition. And remember, we're talking about uh, one and a half trillion Rand for five years. It's, it's not what the transition is going to require. It's what we think is needed for five years in three sectors. And there are plenty of other sectors and there are plenty of other needs. But having looked at it, to what is it going to take to really bring the South African capital in South Africa as well as international capital in behind this behind this plan. And I think it is a, a very it's something that I've been racking my brains about because you know we can produce beautiful plans as a country. We aren't always so good as uh, at, at making the rubber hit the road and making them happen. And in this case I think the finance is an absolutely critical and pivotal element of it. So I don't know who wants to go first. You, okay, Yunus, Mira, then Wendy. And then, Minister, if we can ask you to come in at the end with a few of your observations. I think the first step is just getting the projects out the door. Particularly in the renewable sector where you have corporate offtake on the other side. So if you think about the three components of this plan, there's the energy space, which is essentially a combination of the grid and renewables. There's the electric vehicles and there's green hydrogen. In the energy space, building the new renewables is not something the private sector is going to struggle to finance, provided the projects have grid connections and have currently 100% offtake from somebody, I'm hoping it's going to be less. And the banks are eager to finance that, 
the asset managers, there are some of us who can actually do the long dated financing, 91 included, but in due course, financial markets are creative enough, you get enough of a project pipeline, you'll start bundling them, listing, um, securitizing, listing them. I'm not worried about financing renewables. I think it's once we get beyond that that we have to be more creative. And the first step is the grid. Because there are two ways to finance the grid. One involves recapitalizing Eskom, so Eskom can, can finance the grid extension, which is a work in progress. The second is to start allowing the private sector into the grid which I suspect they're going to be strong ideological concerns about doing. But it's happening by stealth because there are a lot of projects that are actually building their own grid connection currently and including that in the tariff right now. And I suspect there'll be much more of that. But we need to build a new highway from the Northern Cape to the center. And if Eskom can't do that, why not get someone else to do it? That's going to be much more difficult. Beyond that, it's the new sectors, and that's where blended finance, I think, really comes to the fore. Because that's where you're taking on technology risk. Green hydrogen, electric vehicles in South Africa, what does that look like? That's where you're going to have to be much more creative about using de-risking in order to get the private sector financing on top. Thanks. Um, I think a critical thing is a regulatory framework that's consistent. And by that I mean we've got to look at what are the banking supervisory regulations, which Daniel knows obviously a lot about, but around things like capital ad adequacy, very boring technical bankerish types of things. But we've got to look at is that aligned with then pension fund regulations and regulation 28 and what you can invest in on behalf of of uh, pen, you know, retirees and savers. Then we've got to look at the conduct regulations about when you say something is a green bond, is it really a green bond? And are these things all aligned? Because my one of my concerns is uh, we need to be proportional in our regulatory framework. We can't make it harder to direct capital and funds into green, renewable, sustainable projects because of all the additional burden of tagging, um, third-party assurance, additional um, frameworks and so on. So I'm not saying you have a free-for-all. We need an appropriate balanced regulatory framework um, that provides consistency but is proportional to the context that we're in and the needs that we have. Thank you. Um, Minister, I don't know if you want to respond in particular to, I think, the last two points around, and Daniel made it as well, around regulation and, and policy, as well as, I think, to maybe kind of, uh, we almost at the end of this panel, as well as maybe to give a couple of your observations on the points that have been made as a way to conclude. Well, let me start where I began, and that is with the view that none of this is inevitable and it's not going to happen by itself. And obviously there is a bill currently in the National Assembly, the Climate Bill, 
and that bill is a very important piece of legislation because what it does is that it makes it mandatory for all government departments, all levels of government to cooperate in implementing our climate commitments. But it also makes it mandatory for the private sector to reduce emissions and to work within the carbon, their carbon budgets. So I'm hoping that uh, the National Assembly will uh, put a little bit of FUMA into their processes uh, so, that, so that we should see that bill being passed uh, by the National Assembly, uh, if not this year, very early in the new year. But I think that, um, you know, we're South Africans here, we can talk honestly with each other. So you go out there and everybody says, oh, South Africa's doing such wonderful work and the Jet IP and wow, this is an example to the whole world. And frankly, I feel like a total fraud because we haven't done a thing. Uh, we did what we're very good at doing. We made a plan, right. So we're very good at that, okay. Uh, in the brains department, um, South Africans score very high. Of course, now there's a new department. It's the Spanner department. Um, so we've got to do this, guys. We've got to implement it. On Monday, when the Secretary General of the United Nations opened the Leaders' Summit here at COP27. He said that in a day or two, maybe eight billion will be born. What will you tell her when she asked you what you did about climate change when you ran the world? Thank you.